have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. It's been uh, it's been quite a week. I spent most of the week driving back up to Bellingham, and then as soon as I got here, I started having meetings to begin preparing to do some sort of social distance version of my hometown's uh, regular annual music festival. So that's that's really big and exciting. Uh, so that's happening. I also am working on finishing up my application for this big artist residency that I'm hoping to do. And, you know, just general life stuff. But the good news is I'm back in Bellingham. I'm back in my wonderful little cabin here in Happy Valley. And it's just, it's good to be back. I'll say that. Uh, Did I see, has anything happened? Oh, Marvel did a hysterical thing. Marvel Studios. They, they, they released a trailer for all their upcoming movies, but it was like a sizzle reel where they're like, we have a bajillion movies coming out, and they just like flashed a bunch of titles like, and it was like 20 movies or something. And like, I like their stuff. And even I was like, come on, guy. Like, it's so weird because the, you know, the big studios, their, their pipelines got so pushed back by covid that there's like marvel sitting on like four or five movies they're estimating that are totally completed and ready to go so they've got so much lead time now it's it's bananas anyway uh that about does it for current events let us speak of it no more and on that note let's actually get to this week's episode of strangely and friends the podcast here we go Strangely recommends, in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? (laughs) Preacher. When you arrive at art well after the initial waves of fandom, it is difficult to even get to the core of the thing, a process requiring you to slash through jungles of hyperbolic praise. This has been my experience with Preacher. A 90s comic that is about as bleak as you would expect, given that the story concerns a fallen minister on the road as he seeks to kick the Almighty's ass for taking a holiday from answering prayers. And yet, it's also wickedly funny. I rarely laugh out loud when I am reading in the privacy of my own home, but I sure do with Preacher. Does it lean too heavily on outdated stereotypes? You bet your ass it does. But just when you think you've got it pegged... (laughs) Pegged. It goes and does something so unexpected in its portrayals of the traditionally disenfranchised that you have to pause and wonder what it's really doing. About the time an Irish vampire screams, Fuck the cat! I realized I was in love. This ain't high art, partner, but it sure is one hell of a ride. Here's what I've been reading. The Orphan's Tales by Catherine M. Valenti. I'm about two-thirds of the way through this book, and it is gorgeous. You know, sometimes you read a book, and the language is really, really 
I want to use words that have negative connotations when reviewing literature, like overwrought or ornate prose or something like that. But it really is kind of this very, very colorful, beautifully realized world. It's it's set up as stories nested within stories, kind of like a Arabian Nights meets If on a Winter's Night a Traveler or Cloud Atlas or something like that, where it's kind of this Matryoshka doll. So a character starts telling a story and then within the story that's being told, the protagonist of the second level down meets someone who tells them a story. So then you're three levels down and then sometimes four five, even six levels down. And it's just, it's all beautiful. But then the lower levels end up encountering someone in the thread from an earlier level of the story. So all of the stories end up interconnecting and mattering to each other, not just in a, in a inside out kind of way, like cloud Atlas, but in a sense that, these stories actually help to give each other more meaning and depth. And the imagery is just beautiful. There's deaths and resurrections. There's stars walking amongst us. There's amazing sacrifice and horrible betrayal. You know, just all the kinds of things that you'd expect from a, a, a collection of incredible short stories. I will probably write and think a lot more about this once it's finished, but that's what I've been reading. Here's something I've been mulling. Why do authors sometimes hate their characters? A few weeks ago, I wrote about comedy, opining that comedy has to be uplifting in some way to be worthwhile, that it should feel good. Not always gentle, but the end result should be a net positive in the lives of those experiencing it. One of the things I only mentioned in passing was my dislike for cringe comedy, embodied by programs like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I understand that many of my good friends find these shows very funny, but they always leave me feeling sullied and in need of a shower. I've been trying to better express myself when it comes to these productions because I have so often observed people I love really enjoying them. I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but at the same time, I hope that I can clarify some of my own misgivings about these kinds of entertainment in order to further conversations about them. I think much of my feeling comes from how authors seem to feel about their characters. At the beginning of this essay, I asked why authors seem to hate their characters. Maybe hate is a strong word, but I'm hard-pressed to think of a better one, as it really seems like some authors have a loathing for their creations. The closest comparison I could make is my own youthful anger being expressed via the computer game Oregon Trail. I would make the five customizable family members uh, and name them after people I was mad at. And after that, it was a simple matter of putting them in an overloaded wagon with one too few oxen and then sending them out late in the fall to freeze and or starve to death. Extra bonus points if I could get them to drink tainted water. Every time I played the game after that, I would pass their gravestones along the way. Why are children so disturbing? Anyway, much of cringe comedy feels like that to me. The author presents us with a bunch of crappy people with little to no redeeming value and then proceeds to beat the ever-living snot out of them. It's funny because they deserve it, I guess. Are we supposed to root for the pummeling of the arguable protagonists of the piece? Why? Another example, NBC's The Office, which seemed to rely on ongoing proximity to create bonds with the audience and among the cast, rather than giving the characters much about them to love. 
I've heard this might have adjusted in later seasons, but I'm disinclined to give it a shot. I only have so many hours in my life, and if the first episode of something does not have much to get me back, I might not continue with it. Sorry, Shit's Creek fans. A similar move was pulled with the recent Star Trek Discovery. While I enjoy Disco for many reasons, I'm sorry, you can't just kill a character who's been around in the background for two seasons and had about 15 lines of dialogue total, and then expect me to care. You show the crew crying after their death, and it was so meaningful. <laughs> if you want me to care about the relationship of this character with the other characters, maybe give them some meaningful re interactions prior to the episode where they just die? I could keep winding myself up talking about the things I don't like, but let's go at this from another angle. What is the opposite of this phenomenon that puts a bee in my bonnet? My current favorite show on television is Fargo. I love the original Coen Brothers film, so it was a wild surprise to me that a television show spun off from the film ended up being such a titanic success with the strangely demographic. The existence of the show provides an excellent way to reflect upon what made the original film work so well in the first place. This is because the show, created and run by Noah Hawley, does not seek to be a retread of the original. Instead, the show adapts the tone and style to tell new stories within an established setting. There are cutesy winks to the film, but if you'd never seen it, the show would still work. The kinds of things that made the original film work so well are all present, however. The flat geography of the Midwestern setting, the bleak outlook on human nature, the existence of smaller-than-life protagonists who manage to succeed, and of course the Kafkaesque narrative structure in which all the human characters seem to just be barely surviving in the gears of a mighty machine dead set on grinding them into pulp. It's those tonal touchstones that make the show and its progenitor film so wonderful. Simply put, you can tell that the writers of these pieces love their characters. Even the most heinous individuals get moments of genuinely human behavior. They might adjust their tie in a certain way, stop to fix their hair in a mirror, or insist on eating before seeking the arms of a sex worker for the night. They exist as people. The dialogue is written with an ear for the peculiar music of the particular character's patois. This results in a living and breathing world full of the kind of people that might be horrifying to encounter, but are never, ever boring. They are... At worst, lovable degenerates. Fun fact, the combination of words lovable degenerates required me to do about six takes to nail on that first sentence. I don't know why saying they are at worst lovable I It's hard. Anyway, loving your characters is not the same as approving of every behavior they engage in. But then love in real life does not require approval either. Parents love their children, even as they stop them from running out into the street. Friends still love each other, even as they take the time to express how one of their dearest has crossed the line with the words they say, or the things they do. <laughs> My little sister often will say, I love you, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> it works the same way with the invented characters in the stories we create. If you do not love them, how on earth can you put words into their mouths? From time to time, I engage in mimicry. There are any number of individuals in the wider communities I'm a part of that I could do passable imitations of. This is not to say that I'm in some kind of master impressionist. Far from it, but from time to time, I can replace a speech pattern, a body posture, or the way a friend operates a spoon with 
exceeding caution. Generally, such behavior from me results in delight, even from the individuals in question. I think the reason for this is that they feel seen. Remember what I said about insult comedian Bob Ross's theory about good comedy a couple episodes ago? The way he thinks that a truly good insult is one that actually sees the person in question and thus makes them feel seen? Something similar happens when I do an imitation of a friend. At least, that's my intention. After a show one night, a friend came up to me and complimented me on the imitations that I did, and then asked me if I could ever do an impression of another member of our community that she felt was just ripe for the picking, someone that she thought needed to be taken down a peg or two. I cordially declined as politely as I could, although I did not give any reason in that particular moment, the reason is simple. I do not want to spend that time on imitating someone I do not love. It takes too much time, too much effort, and too much contemplation of what makes someone who they are for me to want to invest myself in imitating them. After all, imitation is the sincerest form of... But I digress. If you need any more examples of this, just think about how many of your friends have relatively decent Kermit the Frog impersonations. I think something similar is occurring when a writer is investing their characters with the internal life needed to create a good story. Imagine how much Tolkien must have loved the motley collection of dorks making up the Fellowship of the Ring. Nor is this better exemplified than in Nikolai Gogol's unfinished novel, Dead Souls. Gogol, although occupying a somewhat privileged position as an urban intellectual, nevertheless chose to portray the people of the countryside as multifaceted individuals with deep thoughts of their own. Gogol's depiction of the rural patois of pre-abolition of serfdom Russia is perhaps only surpassed by Ivan Turgenev's Sketches from a Hunter's Journal, which was also published in Russia a decade later. When the latter book was released, it caused quite a stir, given that it portrayed the peasants living under serfdom as multifaceted individuals, often malcontent with their place in life. This stood in sharp contrast to the prevailing ideology among the upper classes that a antebellum kind of peacefulness reigned, wherein everybody was happily in their place. I have no idea why people throughout history are all like, You must find happiness right where you are. I'm getting distracted. Sorry. What I'm getting at here is that I want to see authors, writers, creators truly love their characters. But what about villains, you ask? How do the jerks of our stories fit into this conception of authors liking their characters? Sure, it's one thing to have affection for a fast-talking anti-hero like Chichikov. Okay, seriously, what the heck? My autocorrect is saying that Chichikov is spelled wrong? It's a Russian name, so no surprise there. What is surprising is that it's suggesting that I replace it with Kuchiching. <sighs> I'm not even going to Google that. I don't want to know what Kuchiching is. Like, if someone wants to tell me, but I'm, that's not going in my Google search history. What in the name of the five saints is that supposed to mean? Verdani preserve us. <clears throat> it's one thing to love a rogue like Han Solo, Star-Lord, Lara Croft, or Lorraine Broughton, but what about the perpetrators of horrendous behavior? Characters like Cruella de Vil, Blofeld, or that asshole that Billy Zane played in Titanic. How about Darth Maul, Vader, Sidious, and Bane? Some of them were loved by their creators for sure. I think villains fall into two distinct categories. We have those who exist just to be utter shitheels. Their motivations are simple, predictable, and boring. They want money, or power, 
Usually power of some kind, maybe revenge, but that's just the kind of power, whatever. Point is, they rarely have much depth. They're usually the guy you have to go through to get to the guy you really need to deal with. Or gal, person, whatever. Ladies and non-binary folks can also be shitheels or villains. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll accept my award soon. Uh... <laughs> I would argue that authors don't, as a general rule, love this kind of villain. Although they may grow to love them. Just look at the growth that happened for characters like Vex in Lost Girl, Andrew in Buffy, or Ender Wigan. What the heck is that last name? Wigan. Wigan. It sounds like, and Wigan sounds like the name of a stuffed animal who has a dark secret in like a magical story about the toys who live at a goodwill. Wigan. <clears throat> they all start as jerks and then grow. In fact, that growth can be really fun to see. Even if they stay evil, if their motivations and reasoning grow, they might grow into the second type of villain. This latter category consists of villains who have sympathetic motivations, ones you yourself might actually find compelling, or perhaps their origin is understandable. You have traveled along with them on the path that ultimately results in their antisocial behavior. One of my favorites of these is the final reveal of who the villain is in Bill Willingham's Fables comics. I won't spoil it here just because it was one of my favorite things to encounter and you, I mean, you do have to read like 12 issues of it, but once you find out who the actual adversary is, damn. Uh, or think of Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger from the 2018 film Black Panther. While having an excuse or a good rationalization does not absolve the antagonist of their crimes, it does allow the audience a level of understanding when contemplating their motivations. This understanding is only possible when the creator of a piece has cared for and shepherded their characters along allowing them to grow and become something more than mere foils. These are the villains we delight in because they actually represent aspects of ourselves. This reminds me of one of the top villains in the canon of world folklore, Baba Yaga or Baba Yaga. Everyone knows about Baba Yaga. I could say her name different every time, or, or maybe not. If you're unfamiliar, She's the crone from Russian folktales who lives in a hut that can walk around on chicken legs. Instead of flying around on a boom, this witch sits in a massive mortar and pushes herself along with an oar-sized pestle. While the exact mechanism of this means of movement escapes my imagination, it is certainly an evocative image. Bubiga has appeared in all manner of works of art from the delightful Hellboy comics and their inferior 2019 adaptation, which is a Fricking crime, especially when held up against the previous Del Toro films, to supernatural shows like Lost Girl. The character is even referenced as a kind of Russian bogeyman in the John Wick films, although this has very little to do with her actual origins. See, origins are a bit like a bag of pick and mix. You're not really sure which things are intended to be part of the gumbo and which are accidental or even malicious inclusions. The academic field of folkloristics is focused on trying to tease some of these accretions apart. According to Russian folklorist Vladimir Prop, is not actually a villain in most of the tales she appears in. She actually serves a role known as the tester. A young person on their journey meets her and must pass her tests in order to survive. If they succeed in this, they usually end up gaining some kind of boon, a magic sports bra or whatever. Prop and other folklorists speculate that this character type arose from ancient puberty rituals wherein young adults would undertake a series of trials culminating in an encounter with a figure not unlike the classic European 
Witch in a Hut. Often this character was played by a village elder. Many times for young men, the tester would be a man in drag, vice versa for young women. It's almost like gender has been some kind of societal construct since forever, and we're all just playing nonsense dress-up. Baba Yaga and her progenitor Sistrin were never meant to be an evil obstacle, but rather the final test on the cusp of adulthood. See, even villains serve a function. Think about Killmonger again. By the end of Black Panther, he has actually convinced the hero to come around to his way of thinking. This kind of storytelling, wherein the creator of a tale is able to imbue not only the heroes with something worth rooting for, but also manages to get you to a place of understanding for a villain, is only possible with empathy. Empathy can only exist when you have some affection for your characters. That is why the traditional tester, or witch character, was played by a member of the young person's community. They needed to truly understand the kid they were testing. That way they could know how far it was safe to push them. This allowed the child to feel like they had earned their adulthood. It's the same with antagonists in stories. If they are too weak or lack compelling motivations, we don't feel as though the hero has earned it. On the flip side, if the writer hates their characters and just seems to be taking sadistic pleasure in their continued pummeling, we don't really feel as though the characters have earned that comeuppance either, leading to a lack of satisfaction in the final product. Don't you see? The real villain was our inability to empathize all along. Or something. I need more coffee. Song of the Week. Sweet Cron. This is the third version of Sweet Cron I'm going to be sharing with all of you. So the first version you heard was like a rough, just-finished-writing-it version. Then you heard my tracks from the final recordion for the album. And now I'm going to share with you the full band version. I've been sending this out to numerous friends, including Bellowing, Sarah Shea, Aaron J. Shea, and a few others. And... I've produced this multi-track recordion of a whole band playing my song. It feels really good. It's super fun to listen to. It's not quite ready for prime time. There's a lot of mixing and mastering that needs to happen, but I just couldn't wait anymore to share it with you folks. So here is the full band recordion of Sweet Cron. One, two, one, two, three, four! Typo, pal, you stopped, you already wanna pay for that sweet cron, that sweet cron. You know it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon. I'll buy myself a bushel and I'll be moving on, munching on that sweet cron. As I drive across this state, I reflect that I've been here before. That's true. Used to be a lady down this way that I adored. Wait, no, am I kidding? There's been several, that's for sure. Everyone abused so much, it knocked me to the floor. Just like that sweet cron, oh yeah, that sweet cron. My friend, it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon. Buy me another bushel and then I'll be moving on. Munching on that sweet crime. Let's take it now.
the bushel and then I'll be moving on Just munching on that sweet corn What is it about Oregon that makes the people low so fine? I don't know Could it be the air they breathe, the grapes they press for wine? Well, actually, it's amazing they grow out in its perfect line Thank you Found that out the other day when I stopped and spent my dimes on that sweet corn You know that sweet corn but it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon So buy yourself a bushel And it will be moving on Munching on that sweet corn this, this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you some of this now <laughs> I'm back in Bellingham, so you can send physical mail to Strangely at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, room number 11. I look forward to hearing from you. That about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me to know that you're out there hearing my words. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duesberg. If you want to help become a supporter of this podcast, you can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this podcast. As a special thank you to Patreon supporters, I've started posting my scripts for these episodes. So you can see the bits of weirdness that were intentional and which ones just happened. Also, as a special thank you to my patrons, I've posted on the Patreon as a patron exclusive the sort of a, a pre-release version of the animated film that I wrote the musical score for. So if you are a patron, go ahead and head over there to patreon.com strangely to check that out. I'll make it free for everybody in a week or two, but um, I'm really excited to have people see it. So patrons, go check that out. And as always, I will be posting the pre-recordian script of this episode on the Patreon. So check that out. I'll see you all next week. Cheers. Gogol's depiction of the rural patois of pre-1850s Russia. Gogol's depiction of the rural patois of pre-abolition of serfdom Russia is surpassed only by Ivan Turgenev's sketches from a hunter's journal. Gogol's depiction of pre- Gogol's depiction of the rural patois of pre-serfdom abolition Russia is only surpassed by Ivan Turgenev's sketches from a hunter, hunter's journal.
Strangely and Friends the Podcast is a Herringbone Society production.